Okay. Welcome, everybody. This is, well, you know what time it is. It's 3 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, and that means it's me and Lou with nothing but fantasy. How are you, Lou? Andrea, I am terrific because I'm on Talking Baseball with you. So not much could be better when you get to talk baseball and get to do it with a good friend, too. And a chick, even. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I got, I have everything going for me at this moment. Not that I always act like a lady, but, you know. All right, let's just get started right away here so I don't have to cut anything out and we're just on a roll here right from the beginning. Uh, so an interesting piece of news today. Roberto Ozuna, the closer in Toronto, is arrested and charged with domestic assault. So, I mean, I was thinking to myself, I mean, I know that they made this, uh, the rule about domestic violence a lot strict, more strict. The punishments are more harsh. Um, Jose Reyes missed 51 games. Aroldis Chapman missed 30 games. Familia missed 15 games. And, uh, the, the point, the, the biggest thing is that they don't have to be commit, you know, you don't have to be convicted. They don't have to be charged. They basically, if there's any kind of, um, domestic dispute going on then mlb has the right to punish baseball players so one thing i have an issue with with that is and i clearly do not um i do not obviously approve of any sort of domestic violence or early any violence at all but sometimes i'm not saying this is the case this time but especially when it's a girlfriend and not a wife i feel like sometimes the uh accusers who are i guess the victims in this scenario sometimes come out of the woodwork whether it be to try and, you know, get hush money or kind of create uh, like a buzz. I'm not saying that's the case here. No, I, I totally agree. I do think it's a little unfair to have these guys suspended and kind of miss time. And many of the time it's probably without pay as well, just based on conjecture without actual evidence. Well, so they've been pretty good about it up t- till now. This is what makes me think that Ozuna – there's far more evidence than there has been in the, these other cases because they didn't – I mean, yeah, like Aroldis Chapman is a good example. He missed 30 games, but this girl that called the police on him – I mean, there was 20 different police officers that went to the house that night, and nobody took him to jail. So there was abs- – and she took her story back, of course. You know, They wanted to get back together, but it's like – this is like messing around with this guy's career, and everybody now thinks Aroldis Chapman is a big asshole – and I mean, I wrote, a, I wrote like a long ass paper on it. I wrote like, you know, it was right when we started the website. There's, if you search Chapman, you could probably find the article, but, um, I did a lot. I mean, I just couldn't believe that basically everybody was just assuming that he was guilty and MLB is punishing him like he's guilty, but there's absolutely no evidence that says he ever did this. There's also think about the trickle down effect it had just in the game itself that the Reds wanted to trade Chapman. Then they, then he had this news come out. They couldn't move him to the Dodgers, who initially were trying to make a play. The Yankees got him for practically nothing, turned him into Glaber Torres, and yeah. then re-signed him. I mean, none of that happens the way it did if these domestic um, violence accusations didn't, don't occur, because Chapman's trade value is much higher, and the Yankees don't get him for literally nothing at all. And I agree. Look, and the Cubs um, don't win the World Series. And the, yeah, and the, <laughs> the World Series because the Reds would have never traded him within the, the division, probably. I so, mean, they basically it, wanted to get rid of him. Yeah. yeah. So um, I agree with you 100% on that. But, um, you know, leading up to the act, because Ozuna's court date, he's obviously out of jail, but his court date is until June 18th. And so I'm thinking there's no need to go out there and replace Ozuna because he's not even going to get suspended until at least this court case goes through. And you know, that could take months. I wouldn't even be thinking about 
you know, replacing him at the moment. But now I see that MLB put him on um, administrative leave. So yeah, that's probably because he was arrested. So because he was arrested, and that's according to Shai Davidi of Sportsnet.ca, who covers the Blue Jays locally. He was arrested this morning, which is probably why he was put on administrative leave. But do you know exactly what that means? Like, is there a amount of time he has to miss because he's on that? How long do they stay on that? I have no idea because um, either it wasn't baseball season and the other examples that we've seen, I, th- I think it was off season when it happened. So I don't really know. With like Chapman for sure. I know with Miguel Sano, it was during the off season as well. Um, Jose Reyes was during the, well, his was October. Yeah, it was right after the season ended because it was Halloween, but his is the only one where there was actual, like, I think he, he might've actually gone to jail. Maybe not. I don't want to say that he did go to jail, but, um, I know that Aroldis Chapman never went to jail. So, um, there's been so few cases of this and it's easy to speculate at the moment, but I will definitely say that, um, it is time to, uh, replace Ozuna because he's on administrative leave. And in my opinion, it must, I would assume that it would be on administrative leave until after the court date on June 18th, at least. Which is a long stretch. I mean, and yeah, there is guys who could take over in Toronto. I mean, I personally would not advocate for Tyler Clipper, but he's an option. Ryan Tapera would probably be my first choice. I think he's got the best stuff. They also have uh, Sung Won Oh, who had some success closing for the Cardinals. So there's a number of different options in Toronto. It's kind of right now it would be speculative ads, but I'm sure at some point John Gibbons will address uh, this matter, how long the student is going to be out and who he plans to deploy in the closers role. And whoever it is is a must-add. I need to make a trade pronto. This guy in labor, Ale only was offering me Tapera and Candrice Morales for, um, he, uh, he wanted, uh, Colome. And I'm second in saves and I'm last in home runs. I'm last in runs. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh. But Morales isn't gonna, Morales isn't gonna shoot you up the standings in runs or even necessarily homers. I mean, yeah, he'll hit 25 he's, plus homers, but he's not gonna shoot you up the standings in that. Well, he's going to help me. I mean, there's it's better than nothing at this point. And Mark Trumbo is the other option he gave me. Should I take Mark Trumbo instead? I mean, they're both having – I mean, Trumbo just got off the DL. But Kendrys Morales is having a n- nightmarish of a year. I mean, Morales has always been consistent in the fact that when he is playing, he does produce, whether he starts slow or not. Tr- Trumbo, I try to stay away from this year, not because he was on the DL, just because – you never know what you're going to get from him. He had that crazy good season that first year in Baltimore. He had a good season years ago with the Angels, but he's never been consistent. And he hits for like 240 most of the time. Morales, career-wise, and I'm not looking, but I believe he's at least somewhere in like the 275 career batting average, gets on base, has the power. So you got to figure that from a consistency standpoint or more reliability standpoint, Morales would be the better choice. Yeah, probably, but we'll see. I think I'll try to just sneak one in on him. He's Larry Schechter. He wrote Winning Fantasy, How to Win at Fantasy Baseball, so I don't think he's probably going to – he's probably going to know about <laughs> Ozuna's accent. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Should I even make the offer now? It's kind of shady to be, like, trying to get one over on him. Who knows? Maybe that's the way you play the game. I mean, I don't know if it's shady. I think it's more – I would classify it more as savvy. <laughs> okay. Um, but – I mean, it, you're like you're right. You're likely right. I don't think he's going to um, necessarily give away Para now if he is in fact looking for saves. He might have uh, kind of fell on ass backwards and do a closer. Okay, some sad news. I just there's a reason I want to bring this up. It is pretty sad. But Stephen Piscotti's mom passed away. She had a really um, 
aggressive form of Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, but I just brought it up. I, I'm like tearing up just even talking about it because it was like such an amazing thing that the Cardinals and the Oakland Athletics were able to do to get him into Oakland to be with his mother because he grew up there. Um, it happened like December. The two teams just got together and said that they wanted him to be close to his mom. And so it just shows you like what kind of team the Cardinals is and really always has been. It, it just the reason that I bring it up is because it's such a nice thing. Oh, it's a very nice thing, and they seem to be intent on trading him regardless, but they could have obviously taken the approach of trading him anywhere, and I, I'm with you. I think it's amazing that they were able to come together and work on a deal, and Oakland didn't. I mean, Oakland very easily could have taken advantage of that situation and kind of offered less than what other teams could have, but I think they probably offered something very fair, and so far, I mean, um, Piscotti's having a pretty decent season with the A's, and I, obviously I'm sure he's dealing with tons of off-field things at the moment, but um, you know, it's definitely a good story. It's good to know that as much of a business as baseball can be at times, they are still, there are still teams out there, there is still, you know, um, people out there that realize that it is still a game and that, you know, real-life things outside of the game are more important. Yeah, I mean, Piscotti was is a pretty valuable asset to the um, athletics, and it's pretty, you know, he was exactly what they needed, really. Uh, but what St. Louis took to get him there was probably a little bit less than they had to, and it just, they've always had such a really good, strong, like the cardinal way, you know. Um, it's, it is really nice to see. So on that note, let's talk about this big rivalry going on with the Red Sox and the Yankees. I know in your notes you had listed that the Yankees are on the best stretch since whenever, okay, since whenever, the best 15-game stretch since their 114-win season in 1998. And now they're facing the Red Sox at home, but the Red Sox are 14-5 and on the road. Okay, and they are so close. This the series. The series is going to be extra special because um, they're so close right now in the standings and in every way. If you look at fan graphs and you look at the team, all the team stats, you see that the Yankees and the Red Sox are both up near. You know, one of them has like a couple more runs than the other one. The run differentials are amazing. Um, the pitching has been better than expected, although tonight is pretty scary. So. Um, uh, go ahead. What do you have to say about this uh, upcoming series and the status of your Yankees? Well, I mean, yeah, their 16-game stretch has been phenomenal, and it's more interesting because most of the games have come against teams that were in the playoffs last year. They swept the Twins. They took three of four in Houston from the Astros, swept the Indians in a three-game set. Uh, so they're playing very good baseball right now, obviously. They've certainly closed that gap. At one point, the Red Sox had like a seven or eight game lead. I think it's down to one now. Um, it's going to be a very interesting series. And I know there was a lot of talk in the media about why the Red Sox didn't try and align um, Chris Sale to start in this series in New York, why he pitched Sunday rather than in this series in New York. And that could be the difference right here, Andrea, because the Yankees will have their three best starters this year in Severino, Tanaka, and Sabathia going. And the Red Sox, I believe, are de- – I'm not sure exactly who they're deploying, but I know for sure it's not Chris Sale. It's Pomeranz first. So, yeah, he's been off to a bad – a tough start so far since he got off the DL. Yeah, he hasn't been good at all. Um, his last outing, which was his third outing of the season, he went six innings, but that's about all you can say about it, really. 
Um, I don't know why they didn't. I guess that it's just too early in the season to be. I don't know. Do you really ever do that? Do you really ever just like? I mean, from my recollection, last year, I don't think the teams play the series that Chris Sale didn't throw it. Well, it, well, I don't know if that's just because it fell in those days, but I mean, it seems that um, it's too, too much of a coincidence that it would always fall on those days. I don't know. I didn't see anything about it, or did I question it? I'm looking up here now. See, Ben Benintendi's not hitting very well, and I think that when he starts hitting well, then it's going to be on because they really are a little surprising at at the fact that they're even being able to keep up with the Yankees hitting. Yeah, for now, and I know this game tomorrow night is Price versus Tanaka. Price, not only has he struggled lately, but his numbers versus the Yankees over the last five years are atrocious, especially in Yankee Stadium. We'll see what Tanaka does. He's so inconsistent. And then I think the best matchup, honestly, is Thursday, Porcello and Sabathia, who are both pitching lights out right now. Yeah, I'm looking at this. The the Red Sox, gosh, Sabathia's been around for so long that you know, he's been around for so long that the lineup that I'm looking at right here, batter versus pitcher, is uh, it's like probably the third generation CC Sabathia <laughs> lineup. You know what I mean? That's faced him because, I mean, I remember back when he was really good and Johnny Damon was facing him. That team was completely different than the team we're looking at now, maybe two generations later, really. <laughs> yeah, not only is the team he's facing different, but he's just so different as a pitcher. You know, he's gone from being that mid-90s thrower to a finesse-type pitcher. He can still hit about 90, but now it's all about command, late movement, really good mix of fastball, slider, changeup. He's just a completely different pitcher. And I saw something, I think it was last week, that he actually leads all of Major League Baseball in the um, least amount of hard contact against the exit velocity um, against him is the lowest around the league right now. Well, he has made, I give him a lot of credit because he's had a lot of ups and downs, but I mean, his career has mostly been ups, but in the late, later years, you know, he got in trouble. He had to go to rehab for alcohol, you know, alcoholics. And I mean, he left right during the playoffs. Do you remember that? That was crazy. But all I'm saying about it, not, not to focus on that more so to focus on the fact that he's been able to really adjust as his age has, you know, as he's aged, they pitchers stop throwing as fast. They don't have that stuff that they used to, so they have to adjust, just like young hitters and young pitchers have to adjust. And, I mean, he's done an excellent job at that. He should really be, like, the guy that people look to when they want to age in baseball as yeah, a pitcher. <laughs> a perfect example of that, as someone who has not made that adjustment, would be Felix Hernandez of the Mariners. I mean, he's not nearly the same age as Sabathia. I think he's in his early 30s, but he started so early in his career the innings have piled up for him and he's lost his velocity and he has not been able to make the adjustment. And um, although he's had a few good starts this year, he was terrible last year and he's gone and hit around very hard and he's just no longer that same pitcher. And I mean, there's still time for him to make that adjustment, but yeah, kudos to Sabathia for forgetting about like the alcohol off field issues. Um, he's come back and he's a completely different pitcher. and He's arguably been the Yankees best pitcher this year. And that's saying something because we know how good Severino is. I mean, just the fact that the total grit that it would take to come back to New York after you bailed on your team right before the playoffs and to come back and to have to face the crowds, the media, the fans, and to just overcome that is an amazing – it says something amazing about just his, um, you know, his – 
passion, his urge to go back out there and play pitch again. So that's that most most players just wouldn't bother coming back. Like if you're yeah, Matt Harvey, you just retire. Exactly. He's <laughs> definitely a gamer. Um, I know he's a big. Uh, he's probably the most uh, relied upon leader in that clubhouse. And as a pitcher, that's interesting because you don't always see that, obviously, with the pitching staff. But he's someone that the whole team, they're very young, obviously, they look to. Um, he's been one of those streak breakers for them over the last season and a half. I think he's something like 10-1 and one in games where the Yankees, uh, where he pitches after a Yankees loss. So he's, he's really stepped up, and I think the series is going to be good. I think it's going to be a lot of back-and-forth action, but I do think the Yankees will take two of three in New York, similar to the way Boston took two, two of three earlier in the year in Boston. Although at that time, Boston was as hot as anybody, and the Yankees were playing really bad baseball. So you're saying that the Red Sox are going to come out of this series one game back from the Yankees? Uh, no, they'll be tied. I believe the Red Sox are up by a game right now, so if the Yankees were to take two of three, they'd – uh, Boston would leave New York tied in first place. And we'll probably see that back and forth all season long. Both these teams are going to be in the playoffs. Both of them are going to have 93 to 98 wins probably. And one of them is going to have the unfortunate occurrence of having to play the one-game wild card, even though they might end with the two best records in the AL. Well, I have here that the – well, this could just be my addition is wrong. But um, if they lose all three to the Yankees, they come out – two games behind the Yankees. If they win all three, then they come out leading the Yankees by four games. Yeah, that your, your addition is absolutely right. Okay, good. So if they lose two, if the Red Sox lose two out of three games, then wouldn't they still be down to the Yankees by one game? No, they would be tied because... Um, oh, because it's a win. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I gotcha. It counts like two because basically you lose one and then they gain one. So, okay. Either way, my addition was right. Ha ha. That's all there is to it. I did right. Let's, you should be a mathematician. I'm going to say that they come out of this even – I think that they're going to – they, there's no possible way for them to come out a game ahead. I'm going to say that he, they're going to win two out of three. What does that do? If the Red Sox win two of three, they'll be up by two games. Well, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm not surprised that that I have the Yankees taking two of three and you have the Red Sox taking two of three. That's no surprise to anybody. <laughs> I, just the pitching, the, I think the pitching matchups favor the Yankees heavily, and they're just so hot right now. I mean, obviously, if there's one team in the league that could probably slow them down, it is the Red Sox. I'll and they're in the stupid that. New York. They're here in town, so blah, blah, blah. Whatever. All right, let's move on. Let's talk about Garrett Cole. I did well, some. On. While we're talking about the Red Sox, let's talk a little bit about Craig Kimbrell because okay. what he did uh, over the weekend was record his 300th career save, and he's the youngest player to reach that milestone, even beating out Trevor Hoffman and Mariano Rivera, which is very interesting because obviously now he's on pace to break that record. But when I look at Kimbrell, I question whether. He's going to be able to hold up into his late 30s and 40s the same way that Rivera and Hoffman did because Kimbrell's so reliant on the velocity, on the stuff, whereas Rivera was able to pitch into his 40s because he had that amazing cutter. Even when it was 88, 89 miles per hour, he was still able to get out. So even though he's on pace right now, Kimbrell, is he going to be an effective ninth inning pitcher when he hits 36, 37, 38, et cetera? He still has a long way to go to break the all-time record. Yeah, well – who knows what will happen then, but I still think it's really cool. I don't, I don't know how long, maybe he won't need as long to break it since he's got, they're the quickest and 
he's I mean he's got a ninety point nine save percentage and it's that's that's the highest in the history of baseball which is in itself a total accomplishment. Um, I do know that when I was looking around at some notes on Kimbrel that um, the Braves are talking about getting him back. They're looking at him. They want to fit him into their payroll next year. So, which is interesting. Is, is he a free agent after the season? I don't know. It just said that the GM, Anthopolis, confirmed that they will be looking at Kimbrel at the end of the season as well as any other big yeah, money relievers. Must he must be because there's no way the Red Sox would trade him. So he's got to be eligible for a free agency if they're talking about bringing him back. Yeah, he must be. I I didn't really take the time to go check it out, but I I figure I did check the date of the article and make sure I wasn't reading from like when he was a prospect because he came up he used to be in on Atlanta with my boy. Yeah, he started with Atlanta, then he got traded in that big trade with like Justin Upton and a number of other players to the Padres. Padres tanked, traded everybody away. Upton went to the Tigers, Kimber went to the Red Sox, and so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I mean, that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me if the Braves tried to make a play. We, we've seen they've been, although they're slumping right now a little bit, they've been terrific this season. So adding a, bringing a guy like Kimbrell to go with Minter at the back end of that bullpen for years to come is probably a good move. It used to be Johnny Venters, who I'm a big fan of, and I was really happy to see he came back after, I mean, six years and like three and a half or four Tommy John surgeries. Um, He's back in baseball, and that's unbelievable. But the two of them, Kimbrell and Venters, together in the 8th and ninth, it was just an unbelievable sight to watch. So, I mean, Kimbrell, what he what he has accomplished is amazing. I remember people not really ever – I don't – I think that he's been underrated, like, as far as just the hype around him. I don't think he's ever really gotten as much – love as he was, is worth because you know everybody I think he did when he was in Atlanta but since going to San Diego coming over to Boston he has flown under the radar just a little bit and I feel like no one ever ranks him as the top guy he's always in the top three or four but right now I mean around baseball I'm not sure there's anyone I would rely on more heading into the ninth inning with a lead than Kimbrough yeah probably maybe like at this moment I mean coming into the year I would have guessed Kenley Jansen, but he's had some hiccups this year. I mean, Chapman's still great, obviously, although sometimes he gets a little wild, but Kimbrell's got to be in that conversation. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I just, you know, when you're not messing up, it just goes so unnoticed a lot. <laughs> so, um, Albert Pujols, let's talk about him then. He hit his 3,000th hit. Uh that's that one has been under the radar a little bit. I don't think it's been getting enough hype, especially since there's only four um, players in baseball history to ever make 3,000 hits and 600 home runs. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible feat for him to get to, to both of those uh, numbers. And what's interesting to me is that there's been a lot of talk. I mean, I know there's a number of pundits out there that have kind of said uh, the Pools contract hasn't worked out for the Angels, this, that, and the other, and they're not getting what they paid for. But I kind of crunched some numbers, and he still has averaged 28 homers and 90 RBIs over the first six seasons with the Angels. To me, that's that's pretty darn good. That's amazing consistency, especially when you look. It's not like he did that between age 27 and 30-something. He's done it between age 32 and 38. So he's still um, – he might not be what he once was, obviously, from an average standpoint, but 28 homers, 98 RBIs – He'll take that every single season. Oh, absolutely. And he he might not be 
what they paid for him. But what they paid for him was like not even possible. It was just it was outlandish what they paid well, for him. When you start giving those huge contracts to guys who are about thirty years old, you have to expect there to be some sort of decline. You you know that at some point Robinson Cano, for instance, who got that huge deal from Seattle, is not going to be the Cano he was when they signed him. And right. You can say the same thing for Pujols, but Pujols is still. 10-time All-Star, three-time MVP, two-time world champion. He won the Rookie of the Year. Oh, yeah. Pretty much a first ballot Hall of Famer. I don't see how he couldn't be. So Yeah, I um, could say the contract thing, Mike St- or Giancarlo Stanton is good. He's right up there. I mean, if he even has close to what Pujols has done, then he's that's a good contract. Absolutely, and that's just it is that, yeah, you're paying a lot of money for these guys, and you can't always expect them to have – career seasons every year it's the consistency that's important i mean if stan can average 30 to 35 homers and 90 plus rbis over his contract i think yankees will be very happy with that i agree and expect him to hit 60 homers every year average 45 or 50 homers and 110 rbis it's just not it's just not sustainable for anybody over a 15 to 20 year career like some of these guys have yeah, totally. Like, do you think Mike Trout in 10 years is going to be hitting 320 with 45 homers? I don't think so. I could but he'll probably still be a terrific player. Yeah, but he probably, you know, he has speed. So I think that. But how much speed is he going to have at 34 and 35 compared right. to what he has now? Exactly. That's why speedy guys, they just, they don't age as well, I don't think, as DH guys because they can go and play, they can be the DH. But when a speed Very guy. Much. He gets older and starts to like Mike Trout is going to lose if he stops stealing bases. He would just be above but the average. Thing about Trout is that you don't even think of him as a speed guy because he does hit for tons of home runs, yeah. RBIs, and average. I mean, he's he is the definition of obviously a five tool player, a term that gets thrown around a lot, very loosely. In my he's opinion. like the he only one. Him is a legitimate five tool guy, and I think Acuna with the Braves will be at some point. Mookie too. Betts might be. Mookie definitely is. So there's a few, but not very many. Uh, and Mookie is going to get a massive contract when he is ready for free agency. I mean, he's the type of guy, to me, that is as safe a bet as you can possibly get for a long-term contract. Because even when that speed does deplete at some point, he has such a quick bat. He's going to hit for average. He's going to hit for power. I mean, he's hitting in a leadoff spot right now for the Red Sox, but he could arguably hit three or four in pretty much any lineup around Major League Baseball. I probably will never own Mookie Betts ever again because I owned him last year and it was a down year really for what you were expecting for him. Um, you drafted him in the first round after what he did the year before and it was a pretty big disappointment and it just kind of infuriates me to be honest with you <laughs> how well he's doing right now. You know, because- <laughs> you know what? I feel the same way, Andy. In my AL only auction league, I drafted him last year for like 48 bucks and – he just let me down. I mean, I still finished in second place. He still had an okay season, but I traded him in the off season, and now I'm I'm like really annoyed because he's gone off to such a good start, and like I'd love to have that production in my lineup right now. Well, see, you do get it because I also finished in second place, and it was by like the chinny chin chin of my, you know, like the hair. Oh, and I, Andy, I, I was up a point and a half going into the last day, and with an hour left in all the games, I was half a point up, and I lost. So like, yeah, I was like right there. I came in second place in the last, like, 15 minutes of the last game on the last day of the year. I'm blaming it on Mookie Betts, dude. So there yeah, you go. If Mookie would have hit an extra homer or something, or, like, you know, driven in an extra two runs on the year, I would have finished him first. So, yeah, it's definitely his fault. Yes, I agree. 
I just turned our sound up. Hopefully people could maybe not hear us. That's why nobody's talking to us. Okay, but let's talk about the Cubbies. Uh, the Cubbies and Rizzo. I know you wanted to talk about Rizzo. Yeah, well, they're slumping right now, the Cubs, although they did have a huge game last night. I think they lost five in a row heading into it, but uh, there was a lot of talk about Rizzo, and I know we talked about him when he went on the DL with the back injury, being a little worried about whether the production would take a hit. Um, but he's always been a very slow starter. I looked at like his April numbers. He's always kind of started slow, but he's kind of been ripping the baseball since the beginning of May. He already has three homers this month. He has one less RBI and three less hits than he did in all of April. So he's clearly turned it around a little bit. I mentioned starting slow every year, but even so, in the last three years, he always ends up with 30-plus homers, 100-plus RBIs. And I know they've been using him in the leadoff spot quite a bit lately, too, and he's taken a shine to that. I definitely also did some research about Rizzo and found out that he is not only slow in April, but he's slow in May, too. Well, it, he does have a pretty significant difference in how he hits between March, April, and May. And then if you look at his June, July, and August stats, they're unbelievable. Like he goes from last year, um, he hit 227. And the year before that, he hit 236 in March, April, and May. And then in June, July, and August last year, he hit 326 and 262 the year before. So already though, and well, no, no, no. It was 315 last year and 326 the year before. See, I get confused because we haven't actually hit June, July, and August yet. So I have to remember that 2018 isn't on there. Either way, he does. there's a significant difference between the first three months and the second. You know who's very similar to that, too, is Edwin Encarnacion. He, very, he never has a good April, but then sometime in May, he starts to go off. And then he always ends up with like that 35 homers, 100 RBI type season. And I mean, I haven't seen it in some of like, you know, in the Lenny Malik fantasy sports Facebook group or in the bullpen or anything, that group either. Great groups, by the way. Uh, but in the fantasy baseball universe and whatnot, I mean, I see people posting all the time, especially in April and early May. Can I cut Edwin Encarnacion? Can I cut Anthony Rizzo? It's like, no, no, what are you doing? Like, do not cut these guys. Like, they're, they're top 50 picks. And even earlier than that, probably top 30 picks for a very good reason. Yeah, last year, you know, Eric Cosmer started off really slow, and it was the same kind of thing. People were coming – I'm sorry about this crazy freaking dog that lives next door to me that just obviously can't handle other dogs walking by. So Also probably must not be a Cubs fan either. Pro- probably a Cardinals fan. You know? He's probably a freaking Yankee fan. <laughs> <laughs> Do you hear him going crazy? Okay, I'm sorry. Hopefully I can audacity this right out. It's okay. We're, I think everyone listening for the most part is probably a dog fan. It just adds It just adds some flavor to it's our show. It's unbelievable, though. This dog never stops barking. Okay, the, the parent is home, so let, let, I'm just going to cut this part out. I'm going to wait for a second. She'll take the dog in. I feel like screaming out the window, shut the fuck up. <laughs> throw, throw a couple dog treats out the window. Maybe it'll, you know, it'll get distracted. No shit. Okay. All right. Um, you know, Lenny and I were talking about this same thing on the Saturday show about some hitters just are notorious for starting out slow. You mentioned um, in, Encarnacion, and I would say that Carlos Santana is a good one on the list. Um, you also mentioned Domingo Santana on our last show that we did. And um, 
I looked that one up, and of course that's very true. Domingo Santana starts the season off r- rather slow. So well, last year is what I really only noticed it from last year because you know what he ended with. He like he had a terrific season last year, but you look at the April numbers and you never would have thought it was the same player. Isn't it funny that we forget this every year? Like we totally forget about it. We'll talk about it right now, and the next year we'll see Domingo Santana had a great season and, and Justin Bohr had a great season, you know. And we'll go and draft him and forget all about the fact that they had. And I don't own Boar, but I own Domingo across a number of leagues. I forgot about it for the first couple of weeks of April, but in the last few weeks of April, I actually benched Domingo and had just somebody else in there. But now that Mate kind of came around, I have him back in my lineup and I'm waiting for him to get hot. It's really just hard for me to believe and be 100% convinced at the at the whole slow start thing. You know, you're a professional baseball player. You should have your stuff together. Like um, Byron Buxton is another one that even though he has a fracture in his foot right now, I really – he was going to be crappy anyways until the end of June. And I knew that going into this. And I should have – and so as I get older and more – I just feel like I see this happening way too much for it to just be a coincidence, but I'm still not 100% sold on the fact that people just start out slow. Although this year it was off. Honestly, I know you make a good point that professional athletes and whatnot, but you know as well as anybody how much of a repetition-type sport baseball is. A lot of it is obviously in the mind um, as well. And, I mean, I guess guys – when they're used to starting slow, they have this thing like they almost press a little bit too much early on to try and do too much, and they don't. Uh, I know he's retired now, but notoriously slow starter was Mark Teixeira. Yeah, he was. Yep. He was a good example for that. So I do think that there are players that have these tendencies, and this year is – I'm giving them even more – leeway this year because the weather to start the season we started the season earlier than we normally do and there was so many rainouts and so many just games that were just being played in in bad weather yeah and you know people make the argument well they they um they hit well in spring training but then didn't carry it over to the regular season but remember in spring training the weather's warm <laughs> isn't yes because they're in arizona and florida where it's sunny out yeah. Yeah. It was warm. So just because they hit well there, it's not always going to carry over right away because they come in into the cold. Um, and I mean, I, it's not the greatest. It's not the greatest excuse. And then you argue, well, if guys are good in October when it's cold. But you have to remember, in, by the time October comes around, they've had six months to get into, you know, the best possible shape. They're in as much of a groove as they're ever going to be in by the time October comes around. It's a bit of a different situation, April to October. Let's talk about Garrett Cole. Oh, I love this guy. I love this guy. And I remember I, I took him in my AL only auction this year. And um, the guy who has been in the league with me for the whole existence, I think we're in our 11th or 12th year, he was talking to me. He's like, I like your Garrett Cole pick, but if you look, like the strikeout numbers aren't great, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah, but I like the move to Houston. Um, look what Charlie Morton did last year. And I know it's very qualitative versus quantitative, but I mean, he has just been ridiculous. And right now you look and even with guys like Verlander, Keiko McCullers and Morton, he's probably the best Astro starter right now. And it's been unprecedented for him because his career, he's about a nine uh, strikeout per nine inning type of guy. But this season he's up to 13 strikeouts per nine innings. He has a 1.42 ERA on the year compared to 4.26 in 2017, 3.88 in 2016. Um, And I think people forget sometimes that this was a number one overall pick by the the Pirates. Like this is a guy that has always had 
all the skill in the world. He just never really hit his his prime, or I guess the, what his um, the top of his career. I'm blanking on the word. I guess Do you he know never that- set the bar as high as he could have outside of. I think in 2015 he won 19 games, but even that season, his numbers weren't even close to what he's doing now with the Astros. Here's a good tidbit for you. He actually was drafted twice. He the Yankees took him yeah, 28. Yeah, took him at high school, and he went back. He went to college. Yeah, so he wanted he wanted a big ass contract, like six million or something. That was big back then. Um, the Yankees drafted him 28th overall, right out of high school. Uh, and he went. He decided to go back to college and played three years with um, UCLA, and he was out of control, just crazy. But he was, he he was, you know, he's over six feet tall, so he's a big guy. He put on another twenty five pounds before the two thousand eleven draft. But this is a draft class that had, I mean, it had Rendon, Archie Bradley, Lindor, it had Javi Baez. They were all drafted in the top ten, but he was drafted first overall, and. Um, I really do think that after reading this great, a couple of great articles, um, I read a couple of great articles too on Walker Bueller, who we're going to talk about next, but, uh, just what I found with him was that he always threw strikes. He went to, I think he went to school with, uh, Trevor Bauer. Trevor Bauer and him went to school together. Bauer comes up in both of these two, uh, pitchers' careers that we're going to talk about today, which I thought was interesting in, in itself. But, uh, Bauer was, excellent in college i don't know if you remember but bauer went- oh, he, he was amazing and i think he was drafted maybe by the diamondbacks or at least started his career with the diamondbacks maybe he wasn't drafted there but he also kind of started his career very slowly and really wasn't until last year where we started to see the trevor bauer we see now right but he's always been such an intriguing player listen to these stats that he had in college he had 10 complete games including three shutouts and he struck out 203 batters in 136 innings okay it's unbelievable yeah, that's, 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 that's some insane that's some insanely good pitching there and um but and with, with the part about Cole Andy is um is that he this move to Houston um and i, I can't be 100% sure but i know in Pittsburgh, Ray Searage is very much about pitching to contact, lots of sinkers low in the zone, letting the defense kind of play behind you. Not that the Astros aren't, but he's kind of been able to kind of just let loose in Houston and kind of just throw his gas, throw all his pitches, be able to rack up strikeouts. The philosophy change is been exactly kind of what he needed. I mean, he's been so good this year, but last his last time out, I think it was in Arizona, and the D-backs, we know they've been a great team this year, threw a complete game shutout, one hit, 16 strikeouts. Yes, amazing. Um, but the, the article that I was reading was talking about Garrett Cole and the problem being that even though his his um, his fastball, I mean, he's got huge velocity, but his off-speed pitches were only like the, a difference of six to eight miles per hour. So his sinker wasn't really working. It, it's like when you, if you throw 98 miles an hour, your fastball, and but your sinker is 80, you know, 91 miles an hour, it really doesn't, it's not a huge difference and it isn't going to throw batters off the way that it should. No, that only works for Severino and, uh, and four. Those guys throw like 98 and then like a 92 mile per hour slider. It only, it only works for them. Also, um, that he, he was throwing his, um, sinker last year. It was 16.48% of the time. This year he's only throwing it 
percent of the time, and he's basically just thrown away his off-speed pitches because he is. And also, another interesting thing is that he started like the launch angle. You know, hitters are starting to be taught to hit the ball up, right, with a little bit of an uppercut. And so rather than attacking the ball from above and hoping that it will, like, drive, you know, drive it with some spin, basically they attack the ball at a different angle. And so the best way to attack this upper, uppercut swing is by elevating your four-seam fastball. And so it changes the hitter's eye level from the low breaking ball. And even if he does make contact, and the contact is like just an, a, a weak or, you know, a pop-up, a weak pop-up. So um, because he said that throwing his sinker basically just invited harder contact against hitters with these upward swinging planes, which is basically everybody in baseball at this point. Well, that's exactly it. And you nailed that on the head. I mean, when you start throwing up in the zone, it, it thwarts exactly what hitters are trying to do. Um, and you also saw the shifts start coming into play a lot more too when um, – when guys started having these these kind of this launch angle because you either hit it in the air or if you are hitting it on the ground you're kind of you have a lot more weaker contact when you're hitting it on the ground because you are swinging up and with all the shift stats now and the launch angle stats you're able as a pitcher to be able to set up um, in a different way than you're used to. And of course, at some point, maybe the hitters will start adjusting to pitchers throwing up and then you'll see a change and all of a sudden, the league will start pitching lower again. I really like what I'm seeing with him. Of course, I wish I owned him, but to those who do, cheers. I mean, that's such a great, fun thing, especially for fantasy baseballers who Garrett Cole was kind of like, I mean, I seriously remember there being some, you know, question marks as to how it was going to be for him pitching in Arizona or in in Houston. And I don't know if it was because of the ballpark or what, but I really – you know what? I don't even know if it was the ballpark. It's a lot of times, and there's pretty oh, is it from the National League? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's from NL to AL. Most pitchers struggle with that. Well, you know, you know, Saris or somebody wrote an article recently um, about the fact that this whole thing about going from American League to National League is not as doesn't make as much of a difference as it used to, or just lately it hasn't really been that the numbers are quite different. But Lenny will tell you. I mean. It's just a well-known fact. Always take a National League pitcher over an American League pitcher, but I would say in this case that has obviously not not happening. No, it's probably not. So, I mean, this would be... I, I, I can definitely get behind that. So you wanted to talk about Walker Buehler. I know I kind of um, had something on him for you because he's looked so great if for, through his first three starts of the year, especially in his most recent one, uh, had a no-hitter through six innings. I do. Well, I mean, when you had him on the list, of course, he's the newest prospect, the newest, you know, big thing coming up and youngster. And so, of course, I wanted to know a little bit more about him. Um, the I love I really like him because he's totally feisty. He does not have a problem with curse words. He likes to say things like how he sees it. He's really um, straightforward and confident, you know, but he's not very big. And um He's so basically the fact that he can throw 100 miles an hour. I mean, it's unbelievable because it's, you know, um, there was a part in the article that I read that said that force equals mass times acceleration. Basically, just 
this guy's got a lot less mass, but he has a lot more acceleration. So, and this brings in Trevor Bauer because Trevor Bauer, like before he was drafted, he used to try to throw every pitch as hard as he could like trying to push himself to the limit with every time he pitched. And we all know Trevor Bauer has some wacky ways of of getting warmed up and and wacky little antics that he uses when he works on his pitching. But, I mean, I'm really – I think that it's a wonderful story for baseball to see this Trevor Bauer actually find a home where he feels comfortable, where he likes to be, where he feels like the pitching coaches understand him and accept him the way that he is. But – he basically was talking about how um, Walker Walker Bueller and that he thinks that baseball is at its purest form when the pitcher is trying to throw as hard as he can um, and the hitter is trying to hit it as far as he can. And it's basically – so he he talks about Walker Bueller and the fact that he's seen his velocity. Um, he You just don't throw that hard unless you're actively trying to throw that hard, you know. And Walker Bueller questions everything. He – just he's a I like him I like his I just like his um what's the word he's got some Jose his Fernandez makeup. in him his, on the <laughs> his, his cojones yeah yes his mound presence and what's great for Walker Bueller and everyone that decided to take a chance on picking him up whether it be after the first start or before his his debut as a starter this year um, is that the injuries to Ryu and now to Kershaw open up a legitimate long-term opportunity for him to stick in the Dodgers rotation because at the time when he got called up there was rumors that it was really just going to be for a spot start so he's he he hates the idea that you know he had a no-hitter going into the six innings and he was taken out of the game after 93 pitches um and he of course he's a little frustrated with that but he said that his pitches have been counted since his last couple years in little league and so he's used to it and he's not going to like he's not going to argue it but of course it's frustrating um Robert's management over there says that they were they were really saying 140 to 150 innings was a realistic target for him. Like that was during the spring, and he's got 29 innings. So if he does stick with the Dodgers, which I think he will because of the injuries and stuff, and he's doing so well, how could you send a guy? You know, how could you send him away like this? But if he averages five innings per start and starts um, a fifth of the rest of the Dodgers game, which means he would stick in the rotation from here on. That would be another 128 innings. So it would put him right about 160 innings. And I don't see a problem with that, although it's cutting it really close, especially if they make the playoffs. Um, but he's, he's got, he's definitely got, um, what's the word? The mound presence. I think it's really lovely. It is, and yeah, I was going to say, I'm not sure it was the pitch count that concerned them as much as the innings overall, because I'm sure he could have gone 105, 110, 115 pitches. Oh, I, I don't think so. Innings. And, um, I mean, not to the same extent, because he didn't, doesn't have all the, like, the prospect of love the same way the Bueller does, but my boy Domingo Herman on the Yankees had a very similar situation happen to him on the weekend. He had a no-hitter through six innings, I think around 90-something pitches, and Boone went to the bullpen, and Batangas came in and blew the no-hitter. Yankees ended up winning the game, but, you know, they're cautious because the guy is going to be on an innings limit. He's on a pitch limit because he hasn't been stretched out as much. But it's unfortunate. No pitcher is – you ask any pitcher, and no one is going to want to come out of a game, especially when they have a no-hitter. But even in, you know, seventh inning and giving up two runs, it's a tight game. Pitchers don't want, don't want to come out of the game. Like it's 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 in their blood to go out there. Even still, even in this day and age where the bullpens have so much 
uh, to do with, with the end of the games and how teams finish, pitchers still want to finish what they start. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's, it's the athlete, it's the competitor in you for sure. There's no, there's no player that wants to sit out and ever. Um, especially when you started something that great and you don't want to go, of course, you, I could have just imagined throwing a tantrum out on the pitcher's mound if my coach took me out and I was hit, pitching a no hitter. That would just be ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous, but it's what they do. So, um, you just got to go with it. I do know that he, he has had Tommy John surgery. Uh, he had it right out of college and he actually saw a pretty decent sized uptick in his velocity about a year after his surgery because they say that you're the strongest that you're ever going to be. That you know, as you're recovering from Tommy John surgery and you're pushing yourself to the limit, that you're stronger than you ever have been and probably are ever going to be again. So they did see an uptick in his velocity. Basically, when he came back, they wanted him to uh, just pitch like 80 to 85 percent intensity just to focus on throwing strikes just to get his command right and he tried to do it but even then it was like 98 miles an hour you know he basically just that's how he throws the the baseball so he's shown amazing command he's for a youngster and i definitely think that he's another well, good what i love about the flamethrowers andy is that of course you want to preach command of your pitches a good you know three four pitch mix but you can't teach velocity you know when guys have that type of arm you have to let them r- run with it and roll with it it's fine as long as you're not i mean unfortunately i think that they put so much people put so much into velocity i understand you know Don was telling me this morning that it gives the pitcher a an advantage you know it just gives them one more tool to if they don't have great stuff that day that you know um they might be able to get away with it a little better if they if they throw well, that's why everybody outside of the fantasy world obviously in fantasy you love the strikeout but that's why everyone raves about the strikeout pitchers because you don't have to have your best stuff on the mound but you can get yourself into a jam but you can get yourself out of the jam and a lot of pitchers that pitch to contact can't necessarily do that because if you get yourself into a jam even the ground ball can result in an rbi ground out or something but when you have that in your back pocket reach back to throw 98 miles per hour you can get yourself out of jam and that's what we see with those flamethrower pitchers like Severino, like a Thor, Max Scherzer. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, and I definitely think that the strikeout is much more prevalent in high-velocity pitchers, you know, um, so that there's something to be said about that. I mean, That's just, why everyone likes the late-in relievers that are gas cans. Everyone loves the closers that throw 97 or 98 as opposed to the closer that throws 91 or 92. And even if their save percentage is fairly similar, you still always kind of want to go with that guy that can come in and throw strikes and get strikeouts as opposed to a guy that's going to pitch to contact, for instance, like uh, Mark Melanson, who we both know um, – might never be a closer again in baseball. <laughs> yeah, he's not. It's not actually. He did. Uh, he was in the in the dugout or something. He was throwing. He was throwing. I don't know. I'll believe it when I start to really see it. But he was throwing the ball around a little bit. So I'm sure. That- yeah, I do believe they're still running with Hunter Strickland, who although has his own issues potentially in getting outs, he definitely has the most live arm out of uh, Dyson or. Lanson in that Giants bullpen. Yeah, I wouldn't be giving up Strickland too quickly because I really don't believe that um, Melanson is going to come back as quickly as a lot of people do, and that's only just I, you know, if you well, also you don't you don't part of my language fuck with a good thing. 
You know, like when 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 a guy's role and a guy's doing a good job in in his role, you don't want to take him out of that role. And I think the Cardinals kind of made a mistake with that. Although they've gone back to Bud Norris, Norris was doing a great job as the closer there. And I know they spent all that money on Greg Holland, but why go to Greg Holland as the closer? And he ended up making he ended up having a terrible outing. But you roll with what is working for you until Bud Norris shows that he can't be the closer. And at some point, it could happen because last year with the Angels, Norris was great, and then he hit a wall in July or August and stunk. But you roll with what's working for you. Um, I see, you know, we have the most added, most dropped, most viewed, most traded players up on the website now. I keep it updated every every couple hours. But um, I always like to look on this list and um, just kind of make a couple comments about a couple of these players that, that I see on this list, like Yasiel Puig. Okay, you know what I'm going to be saying about that. Do not be dropping Yasiel Puig. It's unbelievable that people get this – Impatient. Well, you're also a Puig truther. I know. You're very vocal about that, but yeah, I'm with you. You don't you don't drop that type that that type of player, a guy that can't be that dynamic. He's going to come back. Um, if you don't have the DL spot for him, you have to find a way to keep him on, on your bench, though. Yes, Absolutely. you really do. And Ian Happ, I think, is another one that you should really try to stay hold on to if you can, because he's already starting to show that he's going to wake up a little bit. Well, he's, he's so streaky. You know, like just because he goes on that cold streak doesn't mean you need to cut him. It just means you need to hold off until he gets on that hot streak again and then throw him in your lineup and ride him. Yeah, because what he does in this hot streak is going to make up for. And if you're going to be stuck with him while he's crappy, you might as well get the credit for when he's good. Um, Let's see who else. We have uh, Cole Calhoun on this list, which I think is, um, I don't know. It's okay. That just depends. If you're in like a 10, 12 team lead, even he might not be worth owning. Um, no, he's not, but in a 14-15 team league or AL only type league, uh, you definitely want to have him, but he's really hasn't really hasn't done he hasn't done much hasn't done much. This just, just had him on the bench, but at some point you figure he's probably gonna get hot and that's when you start to play him and like that's that's one of the arts of playing fantasy baseball is knowing when to play guys, when to start guys, when to sick guys. We already talked if about If you just leave your lineup the way it is from the moment you draft, you're not gonna go very far. I see Matt Chapman on this list. Is there something I should know about him that is not being told? Because I don't think that anybody should be dropping Matt Chapman. I believe he's just kind of been scuffling at the plate after a really hot start to the season. Okay, but, but he's, he's got six like, home runs. Was, yeah, and he's a young player. I mean, young players go through stretches where they're crossing the baseball, the league adjusts, and then they have to make their adjustments. I mean, I think Matt Chapman last year in the second half of the season – was in the top five in Major League Baseball when it came to extra base hits, RBIs, and home runs. Oh, um, absolutely. When he gets hot, it's, it's going to be phenomenal for you. I mean, whatever you're getting out of Matt Chapman is exactly what you drafted right now because he's got the same batting average, which is low, and you already knew that when you drafted him. I mean, that's part of the reason why I stayed away from Matt Chapman was because his 230 batting average was just nightmarish. But literally, he could hit 30 homers easy with his eyes closed. And so this is the type of player that is still going to continue to get better, and he's going to have his slumps, but he does have six homers and 15 RBIs, and this is not a good reason to be dropping him. You're right. And back to the velocity discussion for a moment, because Bidon posted something very interesting in the chat room. The only guys that threw under 91 miles per hour that made the top 50 with a minimum of 100 innings pitched based on the fan graphs values are Gio Gonzalez, 
Mike Leake, Zach Davies, Rich Hill, Marco Estrada, and Dallas Keuchel. Okay, 91, though, is, a, is quite – that's quite low. We can all agree that 91 miles an hour is not anywhere near – I mean, so that, there's a big difference between 91 and 99. Um, well, of course. It just it – just, he's illustrating the point we were making that that baseball nowadays, fantasy players, whatever it might be, everyone's fallen in love with the velocity, and there's only a handful of guys who throw 90, 91 and under um, who – can actually, you know, are considered top type pitchers, and of course with Keiko, we know why. Rich Hill has shown he can do it. Gio has shown he could do it. Estrada has been inconsistent, but has shown at times. I'm not a big Mike Lee guy. I do like Zach Davies, though. I mean, I would own a number of these pitchers depending on the format and the league. But again, um, even as someone who is aware of of this with the difference in velocity and the, the love for certain guys, I'm still going to likely go after a guy that has the velocity and can rack up the strikeouts for me. Like I'm still going to own, I'd still want to own Chris Archer over Gio Gonzalez. I'm sure you would too. Well, what about Kyle Hendricks? Where does he fall in here? Because I know that he's got to be up. He's got to be worth something to fan graphs and uh, he doesn't throw very fast. No, and he doesn't rack up a lot of strikeouts necessarily either. But I think Beedon will have a good answer because he's he's a Cubs yeah. guy. He's probably a Hendricks fan. Well, he's probably got the he has he can always look shit up. That's the best one of the best assets of Beedon. <laughs> he can look shit up like quickly. <laughs> oh yeah, he's one of the best baseball researchers I know. And he's quick, so we always have him on on call. The fact checkers, yeah, he's like the best fact checker around. Yes. Do you want to talk any uh, any DFS here today while, while we're uh, while we're still rolling? Sure, go ahead, give it or out. Do you have anything else? No, I'm good. Something else. Uh, well, I already did a bit of a DFS show earlier on today. Wait, but, let me say one uh, thing, Lenny. Okay. If you're listening, go put in your DraftKings lineup for Tout Wars because it's tonight. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> uh, so there's a pretty decent amount of higher price guys tonight, like Kluber, McCullers, Paxton, Nola, Severino, Minaya, but I'm actually staying away from all of them. I'm going to go DraftKings. Obviously, I get to take two guys. I'm going to go with Sean Newcomb. He's 8,500 at the Rays, and he has more than a K per inning in every start this year, but I looked at his home road splits. On the road, his ERA is four runs less than the ERA at home, averaging 14 more fancy points per game on the road. And the command, it's crazy how good the command is compared to at home. He has eight walks and 24 innings on the road, seven walks and 10 innings at home, and teams are hitting just 198 against him on the road. So although only 24 innings, somewhat of a small sample size, I think we can look into those numbers and we can buy into them because there's just there's such a difference between his home road splits. And he is going up against the Rays, who, although can hit the ball fairly well sometimes, I think it's a pretty good matchup at just 8,500. So Sean Newcomb, huh? I like their, of course I like their matchup. Yeah, and then I'm also, I'm going to take a bit of a risk here because he has obviously been a disappointment this year, but Luis Castillo, only $6,600. We know earlier on in the year when the season started, he was one of the more higher price type guys because of the stuff. But now he's in the mid-6,000s. I mean, he only needs 13.2 points on DraftKings scoring to hit value. And despite the slow start, you got to love the skill set. you got to love the stuff. He can rack up the strikeouts. And um, he is coming off a pretty good start recently against the Brewers. So to me, if you're playing in a GPP and you want to be a little bit of a contrarian type uh, 
person, I would definitely take a shot on Luis Castillo in a big GPP because he's the type of guy that although he has, is struggling, maybe he rolls off 20, 25 points for you and you're saving money with going with guys like him and Newcomb to really spend on your bats. I like the Newcomb idea. The um, Luis Castillo, I'm a little concerned because it's on the road, but I think he did already. Who's he pitching against? He's pitching against the Mets. I actually think it's at home against oh, the Mets. Oh, okay. Then, yeah, I think that I did a, I did some looking at his splits. I actually have him pulled up right here on my fan graphs. So he – what do we have here? Home and away. So he was pretty bad both home and away. But the one that does have – Yeah, he, well, he's just had a really tough season. I mean, there's no there's – no, uh, there's no denying that he struggled pretty much for the most of the season. He's had a couple good starts, but I'm encouraged by the fact that he did just have a good start, and you can't deny the stuff that he has. I mean, especially in DFS when most of your points come from strikeouts, um, he's going to be one of those guys that even if he gives up three runs over six innings, strike gets out seven or eight, he's going to hit his value just on that alone. Okay, and who else do you got? Those are the two pitchers I really like. I mean, I I know – Severino, Mola, Paxton, the colors, Kluber, they all look like juicy, like juicy guys to take, but their prices are very high. And I mean, I look at Blake Snell, I love Blake Snell, but I looked at the Braves, the Braves, I think have only lost one game all year long to a lefty starter. What about position players? Who you got there? Uh, let's see. So I have two stacks. Obviously the obvious ones are the Angels and Rockies are playing in Coors Field. Uh, always want to have some sort of lineup with the way team, home team, or a mixture of the two, whether it be Trout, Upton, Pujols, Simmons, Arenado, Blackman, Dahl, etc. But the the contrarian stack I'm going to go with tonight because most people are going to be on that Angels and Rockies stack. Yeah, um, I like the Nationals tonight. Not only are they playing really good baseball, eight and two over the last ten games, but the offense really starting to click. Obviously led by Matt Adams, who's been on a tear. But I mean Bryce Harper, Trey Turner, Rendon, Howie Kendrick. That's my main lineup tonight. I have Adams and those four guys kind of in there. They also get to face Clayton Richards, who's one and four on the year, ERA over six, whip over 1.70. So I like their matchup, whether it be in San Diego, not really going to scare me away there. And again, everyone's kind of loading up on the obvious stack of the Angels and the Rockies. It's one thing if you're in like a 20, in like a 20 team, um, small tournament. Maybe going with the Angels Rocky stacks is a good thing, but if you're in a GPP with thirty thousand and entries, you want to be a little different than the majority. Absolutely, you definitely want to be a little bit different than the majority. Um, I have Sean Rodriguez on my um, on my contrarian list, and I also have Blandino on there for Cincinnati. He's very cheap. He plays uh, second base. And Lurie Garcia is another one I got super cheap. I told you, Sean Rodriguez, those are my um, cheapies for the night in my DraftKings lineup. That's because I have Nola and Kluber as my pitchers. Yeah, well, see, that's one of the only problems with going with those expensive guys. And I look at their matchups. I mean, not that I would shy away from Kluber against anybody, but it's not an ideal matchup in Milwaukee. Um, Nola, Nola is a better start. The Giants actually, until last night, had been hitting the baseball very well. Obviously, they shot, got shut out last night. That kind of hurt me because I was going to stack them against Eflin because they had a tremendous numbers against him career-wise. Um, I have some value plays here as well. I have uh, Alex Verdugo, very cheap, hits top the order in L.A. and gets playing time with the Puig injury, with Taylor now being at shortstop. I have Marwin Gonzalez tonight 
for Sean Manea coming off a really big night, probably his best of the year. But even though he started slow, he's actually third on the Astros and RBIs right now, only behind Correa and Springer. So hitting in the middle of the order, giving him tons of run scoring opportunities, run producing opportunities. And then Alan Hansen of the Giants, 3,200. He's going against your boy Nola. But since joining the Giants, taking over for panic, he's really been hitting the ball really well. Been hot recently over the last four games, seven hits, three runs, three doubles, a homer, five RBIs. I used him yesterday as a value play too. Didn't have an amazing game. Still put up five DraftKings points though. Um, he's been producing at $3,200. Not really a, uh, a, like a big gamble there, so to speak. While he's hitting well, you can certainly use him in the lineup. I just found out Blandino's not in the lineup, so that's not going to be working out for me. Is Sean Rodriguez in the lineup either? I feel like he's a platoon guy. I think they're facing a righty tonight. He might not be in the lineup either. He might not, so check it out if you take my advice. But I'll Yeah, be- well, remember remember what we talked about last week, that the Roto, the Roto-Wire daily lineups app always use that is it gives you all the lineups gives you the weather reports gives you everything you need to know and it's free okay and on that note note, nothing but fantasy we'll see you next tuesday take care